0: This is come and see by Father Ron Baird for March 20th, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. The message is by Mother Nancy Stanton. Records a famous conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. John tells us in verse 1 that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. He was a scholar of Hebrew scripture. He was a deeply religious man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Senate of that day. Nicodemus was one of the most famous and powerful men in all of Israel. Now, it's strange, isn't it, that the only thing that we remember about him, with all of his fame and power, is that one night he spoke to a carpenter from Nazareth. If we'd been present that night, these two people were talking as first-century Jews And we might have seen this moment very differently than we do now as we read it. In some ways, it's like watching two actors in a movie. On this side of the screen, we see Nicodemus playing the part of a scholar, powerful politician from Jerusalem. Now, on the other side of the screen... We see a working man, an evangelist from Nazareth. Now, you know, actors often play roles that are quite different from what they really are. One of the most different, since movies have been movies, is that of Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin was famous for his role as the little tramp. And he was always dressed in the derby hat and a ragged jacket and pants, and he had that springy little bamboo cane that shook back and forth in oversized clown shoes. And in the world of of the film, he played the role of a homeless tramp. But in the real world, Charlie Chaplin was one of the wealthier actors who played the rich folk in his real life. When he finished his day's work, he took off the ragged clothes and he put on the best, and he would go out and his chauffeur would come and pick him up in his chauffeur-driven limousine, and he would ride to Beverly Hills to his mansion because in his real life, the man who played the real tramp, the little tramp, was one of the wealthiest men in Hollywood. Would we have recognized who Jesus really was if we had lived in the days of Nicodemus? What do you think? Could we have seen past his peasant clothes? Probably had a country accent because he was from Nazareth. He had a lot of fisherman friends. The social chasm between Nicodemus and Jesus must have appeared absolutely enormous to the Jews of that day. On one side was Nicodemus, who had long worn the mantle of power and influence. And on the other side was Jesus, who had never held a political office. And yet, Jesus was all Nicodemus was a wealthy man who enjoyed all the privileges that money brings, and Jesus was a poor man. Nicodemus was a scholar who studied scripture with the finest teachers. Jesus hewed timber. He built frameworks for houses, made tables and chairs. He was a craftsman. He just happened to be the person who knew everything. Nicodemus examined Jesus' ministry, and he was there for a reason. He was there examining it to protect the people from false teaching. But though Jesus was in Nicodemus' country, Nicodemus was in Jesus' world. And we can see that now. But they couldn't necessarily see that then. John tells us that Nicodemus, this distinguished scholar and ruler, came to see Jesus at night. And the question is, why? Why did he come at night? Why does John think it's important to mention the fact that he came at night? Was Nicodemus avoiding the crowds that surrounded Jesus during the day? Sometimes those crowds made access to him almost impossible. And Nicodemus wanted to speak with him. He wanted to have a talk with him. Was Nicodemus timid and fearful that his fellow Pharisees would see him speaking with Jesus? Well, we really don't know the answer, do we? But what we do know is that he came at night, whether to avoid the crowds or the prying eyes of others, or because it was his only hour free in his daytimer, We look at our daytimers. that might have been too. What's special about Nicodemus is that he came to Jesus in a different way than the other Pharisees did. Other Pharisees thought that Jesus knew very little about the Bible. And what little he knew, he didn't understand. They feared his teaching would mislead the uneducated. So they asked him very difficult questions, trying to discredit him, trying to fool him. And they noticed that Jesus hung out with the most unsavory of people. He was there with prostitutes tax collectors. He was there with all kinds of miscellaneous sinners. So some doubted his judgment, and some doubted his concern for ritual purity. And others doubted his morality. Now let's stop and think a minute. Would you feel comfortable coming to this church if Father Ron and I hung out mostly in bars, mostly with people that were tremendous sinners. They were known as being sinners. Would you want to come to this church? Would you feel that we could do anything that would teach you good? You know, probably not. You would probably feel like there had to be another church in Columbus that the priests were not Hanging out in bars. And yet, they saw Jesus' miracles. And they knew that those miracles were real. They couldn't deny them. So the question was what was the power behind them? He performed miracles through the power of the devil, they said. It's hard for devil to give anybody power to perform miracles that are good when the devil's bad. Nicodemus saw the same miracles and believed that they must come from God. And he said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. He knew Jesus' miracles were signs of some sort. They powerfully supported Jesus' teaching. But what was Jesus' mission? Some Pharisees supported the fact that he was going to start a revolution. They feared Rome's response. What would happen if he tried to start a revolution? But Nicodemus kept asking himself, Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the Messiah? And many Jews were asking that question. It was a good question. They were asking it at synagogues and at the marketplace and at community wells and at supper tables and in the editorial pages of the Jerusalem Post, if there was one. His theology was all wrong. He certainly wasn't very spiritual. His choice of friends were suspect. And there were really unsavory rumors about his birth. Nicodemus still hadn't come to any conclusions. So he came that night to find out who Jesus was and what Jesus intended to do. If Jesus was the Messiah, then God would fight for Israel and bring them to victory. The Messiah would defeat all of his enemies and sit once again on the throne of his father David. If Jesus wasn't the Messiah, well, the results would be catastrophic. If he started a revolution, many, many Jews would needlessly die. But... On whether or not Nicodemus could understand it, or whether or not he could believe it, everything depended. Nicodemus asked and said many things that night. These 21 verses, 17 that we had today, are just a snippet of the conversation. But they show that it veered off in a direction Nicodemus had not intended. Apparently, Jesus didn't say anything about being the Messiah or not about being the Messiah. He kept talking about being born again. The moment of the Spirit, the movement of the Spirit, the other theological ideas which seemed unfamiliar even to a learned man like Nicodemus. I want to focus on one small part of their theological discussion. It was Jesus' mission statement, and it explained why he came to earth. And it shaped everything that he did and everything he said. It's for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, Jesus does tell Nicodemus who he is. And what he's doing. But Nicodemus doesn't understand. He doesn't know what Jesus is getting at. And the answer to his question is so different than he expected. And that's often how God is. We ask him multiple choice questions, and God answers the letter D, none of the above. The verse itself divides neatly into two parts in the first part jesus talks about attitude god's attitude towards the world and his action to save it and in the second part jesus talks about our response our response to god's action and the results let's take a look at the first part for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son For Nicodemus and Jesus, the existence of God was basic and unquestioned. At that time, almost everyone believed in the existence of the divine being, Gentiles or Jews. But many Gentiles believed that the gods were either indifferent to humans, they really didn't care about them, or they were antagonistic toward them. And something must be done to please them, to win favors from them, or to at least keep the gods from harming people. But Jesus reveals something extraordinary about the living God. He reveals that God is passionate about us, about you and me, that he has the deepest feelings for us, the deepest feelings that anyone could ever have for another the deepest feelings of love and Nicodemus knew that God loved the Jewish people every child at the synagogue school knew that but notice what Jesus says God doesn't just love the Jewish people he doesn't just love the Americans or the Ohioans or the Republicans He doesn't just love the black or the white or the green or the purple. Remember what he says. Even Jesus' first disciples struggled to understand and believe this. Remember Jesus told them to go into the world and preach the gospel and preach it in Jerusalem and in Samaria and some distant parts of the earth. God so loved the world and everyone in it, every single human being in it, the good, the bad, the lukewarm. And he offers the good news of the gospel to every single human being. In our day, the word love has come to be just another word. And that's so sad. It's lost its value. Love is a word that comes quickly to people's lips, but how much lies behind it is always the question. Jesus said, God loves the world, but how deep does God love the world? How much does He love us? So deep that he gave his one and only son to the world. There's so much that Jesus reveals, but at the same time, he conceals some from Nicodemus also. Let's look at the word gave. And gave is a really bland word, the kind of word that English teachers try to put something that's a little more vivid in its place. But in hindsight, we know that the word gave concealed a lot. In Jesus' life, the word gave concealed the slashing whips, the crown of thorns, the crucifixion, the death, the sacrifice. The bearing of all of our sins were hidden in that word gave. The tiny word gave means all this and more to all of us who are Christians. But that particular night, it remained a riddle to Nicodemus, tantalizing but revealing nothing of its true significance. But was Jesus aware of this? Did he know that his mission would lead him not to a crown in Jerusalem, but to a crown of thorns on Golgotha? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Almost 15 centuries before Jesus lived, Moses crafted a bronze snake by God's instructions and tied it to a pole. And gripping the pole, he waded into a human mass. Most of the people were kneeling or lying on the ground. And their eyes were wide with fear. Their arms stretched imploringly. Venomous snakes had bitten each one. And now the poison was doing its work. Then Moses thrust up the pole. And the snake, and all who looked on it, lived and didn't die. So I must be lifted up, Jesus said, that all who believe in me may have eternal life. That leads to the second part of the verse, the part that talks about our response to God's action and its result. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. As we just heard, God loves the world. Now Jesus uses a related word, one of the most comforting words in the Bible, and also one of the most disturbing. It's the word whosoever. Aren't you glad that Jesus said whosoever? That means that you Or your spouse or your friends or your children whosoever whosoever means you and I it means more than accepting the basic facts of Jesus life more than accepting that he grew up in Nazareth and he was a carpenter and he became an evangelist and that he was rejected by Jewish leaders and crucified by the Romans, even more than believing that he rose from the dead, it means transforming your trust for your eternal destiny for yourself to Jesus. Accepting him as your Savior, accepting him as your Lord, it's comforting to know that whosoever includes everyone whether you're a millionaire or a homeless man on high street, whether you're white or black or yellow or red, no matter who you are, no matter who you are, you can become a disciple of Jesus if you believe in him. Now, what's disturbing however, is that whosoever may include those that we might wish God didn't love so much. The Cub Scout leader who molested a child. The neighbor who raped the girl next door. The drunk driver who crippled her spouse. This is not so comforting and more difficult for us to believe is that if that person accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they'll go to heaven too. They may be the one to meet you there. What if that had been your little boy? how would you have felt what would you have done I read an article some time ago in Time magazine about a man who had been accused of of murdering three young boys the first two were brothers and they had been playing in a nearby park with the other boy and um, like every parent's nightmare He lured the boys into his home with the promise of ice cream and their bodies were found later on in the park. Their killer wasn't. After a year or so, he found another little boy. This little boy was eight years old and he was playing alone by himself at the same park. And after bringing the boy back to his house, the man tortured him over and over and kept photos And he also kept a diary of what he did to him. One of the detectives that was working with the case, who had to later look at the photo album and read the diary, became so psychologically messed up that he had to leave his job for the rest of his life and he had to have counseling. He had to go to a mental hospital for some time to get Straightened out on drugs. After several days of tormenting the boy, he finally tormented him to death. Unbelievable. Before the trial began for this young man, a chaplain visited the same man in jail. And the chaplain told him that God loved him and that Jesus died on the cross for him. And that if he would only believe, Jesus would forgive every sin, every sin that he had ever committed. And according to the article, this child molester, this murderer bowed his head and he accepted Jesus Christ as his personal savior. Whosoever, whosoever believeth in me. I didn't want to believe it. How could God love such a man? God only knows how much that little boy suffered. And now his tormentor is washed in the blessed blood of the lamb. Part of the family of God on his way To heaven, to his mansion just over the hilltop, singing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. As I read it, it just seemed wrong. It just seemed terribly wrong. But a few days later, the Lord gave me a different perspective. I was reading where Paul gives his testimony to King Agrippa. And in it, he says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and then they were put to death. I cast my vote against them, and many a time I went from the synagogue to another synagogue to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. It's the St. Paul that's saying this. Now, I knew that Paul was bad, but he persecuted the church. But I never knew how really rotten he was until that moment. And like you, I've read where Paul writes Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the chief. I'm the chief of sinners, the worst sinner you know. Before, I'd always thought, you know, Paul is sure humble, isn't he? Imagine a godly man like that, calling himself the worst sinner. And even after serving God all of those years. But Paul was right. Go and read it again. He was the worst of all sinners. He was an evil man. He was a wicked man. And he screamed in their agony. And often the pain became unbearable. And finally, when human endurance had reached an end, they denied their faith in Jesus. Anything to stop the pain, the throbbing, the mind-numbing pain. Some lost their faith forever. That others wouldn't budge no matter how much they suffered. And those, he saw them, they were executed. Paul's path was littered with broken bodies, broken minds, broken homes, broken dreams, and broken faith. How hard it must have been for him after he became a Christian to erase those memories. Every time he went to the synagogue in Jerusalem, he faced those who he had persecuted. And those he had persecuted faced him. Paul wasn't proud of his past. He knew better than anyone what kind of a man he had been. But he also knew that beyond all human exceptions, beyond all human expectations, God loved him and had forgiven him. Do you ever feel like you can't become a Christian because you've done too many things that are wrong? Do you ever think that you're beyond the reach of God's love? That God could never, ever love you? If you ever feel that way? Look at Paul, and you'll know how very wrong you are. Jesus continues to speak another hard truth, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. Now, here's a word that conceals much, the word perish. Jesus wasn't talking about physical death, that all of us must face that physical death. He was referring to spiritual death. In a place so horrible, he said that I should pluck out my eye or cut off my hand if either one would lead me there. More than six billion people live in this world. All of us are marching towards eternity. All six billion of us with souls that will live beyond the death of our bodies. But more than one possible destiny awaits for us. There's a heaven to gain. But there's also a hell to shun. And if the gospel is good news, hell is the bad news. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. God created hell in the lake of fire for the devil and his angels. He never intended to send humans there, I don't believe. But after loving you for a lifetime, he will send you there if you refuse to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. But God gave Jesus to the world not so that we could avoid hell. He gave his son to us so that we could have everlasting life. And if you're like me, you've wondered What we'll do with that everlasting life forever. You know, heaven can sound really boring. We're going to sit around and play harps and sing Amazing Grace. That's good for a while, but every day, 24 hours a day, could get a little much. Have you ever thought of how boring that could be? And then if we think about hell, boy, have I heard some wild descriptions of hell. We conjure up images and, of its torments, and hell leaps to life. But we describe heaven, and our imaginations are just kind of limp. Hell may sound like eternal torment, but heaven sounds like eternal boredom. It's hard for us to imagine anything about heaven beyond white robes, harps, and the hymns. And perhaps that shows how badly sin has twisted our imaginations that we can't envision the pleasures of perfection. At the end of the book of Revelations, the Apostle John catches a glimpse of what our eternal home will be like. And John sees a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth have passed away. And he sees the new Jerusalem descending from heaven to earth, and God's making his home with us, and he sees God wiping away every tear. And there's no more death and no more sorrow and no more crying and no pain. All things are new. John sees a place which challenges even his superb powers of description, a place of transcendent physical and spiritual and moral beauty. Sometimes I look at this world. You go for a walk in the woods or you're by the water or if you're just walking down the street and seeing people out. Seen children playing yesterday around my house. There had to have been at least a dozen scooters flying around. The kids having a blast on the scooters. If this world, with all of its corruption, can be so beautiful, if this world, even though it's under a curse, can you imagine how much more beautiful heaven and the new earth will be? I really believe that anything we have ever daydreamed about doing or wanting to do will be available there for us to do. And it's going to be exciting and fun. We lose sight of Nicodemus, and the last time we see him is when Jesus had just died on the cross. And Joseph Arimathea, Another secret disciple of Jesus has requested the body from Pilate and is preparing to place him in his own family tomb that he had just hewn out of the rock. Joseph of Arimathea was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had visited Jesus earlier in the night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds of it, a lot. And he took Jesus' body, and the two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. This was according to the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden was where Joseph of Arimathea's new tomb was, in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they quickly laid Jesus there. Can you imagine what was going through Nicodemus' mind at that time as he wound the linen around the battered body of Jesus? as he scooped up hands full of myrrh and aloes and tucked them between the strips of the cloth. Did he think back to the night when he and the carpenter from Nazareth spoke words which exchanged the whole, which changed the whole course of his life? Did he understand now what Jesus meant when he said, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the question is, do we? You have been listening to Come and See by Father Ron Baird. Come and See is a production of St. Andrew's Church in Lewis Center, Ohio. St. Andrew's is also available online at www.standrewspolaris.org. Please join us again when we invite you to come and see.